Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling, conversational interviews, and Carrie's natural curiosity, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of entrepreneurs, athletes, medical professionals, politicians, and other successful people, all sharing their stories of success and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. We have a great show today. My guest is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield, Director of the Couples Center at UAMS in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I will be getting up in the business of interpersonal relationships, the practice of dream work, and yes, sexology. We hope through our conversation and storytelling, you will learn something, want to get involved, or be inspired to take action in your own life. For me, the taking action began over 40 years ago when I founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, Arkansas Flag and Banner has grown and morphed from door-to-door sales to telemarketing to mail order and catalog sales and now relies heavily on the internet. Each change in sales strategy required a change in company thinking and procedures. My confidence, leadership knowledge, and my company grew. Each week on this show, you'll hear candid conversations between me and my guests about real-world experiences, especially today, on a variety of businesses and topics that I hope you'll find interesting especially today. Starting and running a business or organization is like so many things. It takes persistence, perseverance, and patience. I worked part-time jobs for nine years before Arkansas Flag and Banner grew enough to support just me. Today, we have 10 departments and 25 co-workers, thus reminding us all, small businesses are the fuel of our country's economic engine and empower people's lives. My guest today is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. She is a nationally recognized expert in the field of couples therapy. Didn't we used to call that marriage counseling? Yes. But now not everybody's married. That's right. That's That's what we call it, couples therapy. I like it. And she was recruited in January of 2017 by the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, UAMS, to establish a program designed to treat those with interpersonal relationship issues. Chelsea is an assistant professor at UAMS Psychiatric Research Institute and was hired to be the director of the new UAMS Couples Center, whose mission is to help couples navigate the unique challenges of relationships in the 21st century by providing counseling, group therapy, and community education about love, desire, relationships, and sex. The center also teaches her methodologies to other counselors so they can help their clients, thus sharing the love. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in social work, a PhD in clinical sexology. She has published two books, Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty and In Search of Aphrodite, which are both used by clinical professionals and laypersons. To sum Chelsea up, she is a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist, couples therapist, dream worker, workshop and retreat leader who works with individuals, couples, and groups. Welcome to the table, the extremely interesting and deep thinker, Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. Thank you. That was fun. (laughs) Good. We have a lot to cover today. You've written two books, Negotiating Your Inner Peace Treaty and In Search of Aphrodite, Women, Archetypes, and Sex Therapy. In those two books, you talk about becoming the person you were born to be. Everybody wants to do that. Mm -hmm. Dream work. I love this. And couple and sex therapy. Well, I like that too. Before we get started, I want to find out how you ended up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and how you first became interested in psychology and sexology. Well, I I wound up here in Little Rock, Arkansas, because Dr. Rick Smith, who is a visionary over at the Psychiatric Research Institute, and his wife, Susan Sims-Smith, who is an Episcopal priest in this area, uh, recruited me. And I've known Susan Sims-Smith for quite some time, and for a couple of years before I came here to do a Grand Rounds, they had been sending couples out to Asheville, North Carolina, to work with me. Uh, And I'd been continuing to work with them remotely by Skype, and I came out to do a grand rounds, and Dr. Rick Smith said, uh, one of the last things I'd like to do before retiring is to really start a training program for clinicians in Arkansas and the heartland, the middle of the United States, uh, to 
to train people to do good couples therapy. I love it. Well, Susan Sim Smith used to be a psychiatrist, I believe, and then she converted to an Episcopal priest. She was a clinical social worker, had a practice here in Little Rock for quite some time as a therapist, and then she went into training. And actually, through her dream work, she was called into being a priest. And she thought she's one of the great, she's very, very tuned into her dreams and follows them to the nth degree. Yes, she does. Yeah. Um, but that's not what, and that's how you got to Little Rock. That is how I got to Little Rock, with also listening and attending to my own dreams and having lots of conversations with my husband, which could be a couple's book in and of itself, (laughs) in terms of uh, our caring for each other. And my saying to him, "I, I can't possibly uproot you from where we are. Your best friend is here, and you love it here in the mountains of North Carolina. And him saying... You can't possibly not go because this is a culmination of a life's work and a way for you to disseminate more information to more people. And we just kept talking about it and talking about it and working out the the disconnects and the tensions. And now we're here and we're very happy to be here. Did he have a job? Tom is retired. Yes. So how long did it take you to work it out? Well, we, it wasn't a conflict. It was more of a conversation and just sort of sitting with it and bubbling with it and seeing how we could make it work. And, and really putting into action principles that I believe in in good couples, which is differentiation, us each being individuals and really sharing and talking about who we are, and then caring for each other, being in each other's care, and each of us wanting the other person to uh, have a wonderful life and to fully express who they are. So uh, I think I read where you got into psychology in when you were in about 22 or 23? I had a boyfriend who was training to be a psychologist, and he took me to uh, an early workshop uh, that was led by the Gouldings, who were great gestalt and transactional analysis psychotherapists. And uh, so I was exposed to this very early, and uh, it was very interesting to me. At that time, I, I didn't have an interest in becoming a psychotherapist, but that developed later. And But I was always interested in my own process and why I was the way I was and why other people were the way they were and how relationships worked. And uh, from the time I was introduced to sexuality, I was very interested in sexuality and what that meant to people and how it might be fulfilling and creative. And well, A lot of people go into psychiatry because they have a unfortunate catastrophe of some type happened. Did you have a moment that you said, I need to go deeper into myself and figure out why I'm feeling this way? I, um, well, I had a father who had a lot of difficulties in his life. Uh, He divorced when I was in my 20s, and I watched the unraveling of my parents' marriage for reasons that was really not necessary. But they didn't get the treatment that they needed, and my father didn't get the treatment that he needed either. He really needed to be on an antidepressant. He went into a very classical depression after a heart attack, which is not unusual, we've learned. Um, And unfortunately, he got some very bad advice from his pastor, who said that um, what the problem was was probably unconfessed sin, and he went in search of some sin that he had not confessed. And Their relationship fell to pieces, and he was in deep trouble for a long time. So my master's degree, my my dissertation for my master's degree was actually on clergy as a community mental health research and a resource and looking at the role of clergy and helping people. And that helped to heal some of that trauma for me, having watched my parents go through that. And you were dating that boy at the time? Um, which boy? <laughs> the one that helped, that was a psych, that you said was. Oh, the psychologist. That was before oh. I got my master's in clinical social work. I was actually married to Tom Wakefield by that time. Yeah. All right. This is a great place to take a break. We have a lot to talk about. When we come back, we're going to get advice from Dr. Chelsea Wakefield on how to become the person you were born to be. We all want to do that. How to interpret your dreams and get advice on couples and sex therapy. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. 
During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she embraced the internet and rebranded her company as simply flagandbanner.com. In 2004, she became an early blogger. Since then, she has founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom, began publishing her magazine Brave, and in 2016 branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcasts. And today, in 2020, Carrie McCoy Enterprises acquired OurCornerMarket.com, an online company specializing in American-made plaques, signage, and memorials for over 20 years. If you'd like to sponsor this show or get involved with any of Carrie McCoy's enterprises, send an email to me, gray at flagandbanner.com. That's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Dr. Chelsea Wakefield, professor of UAMS Psychiatric Research Institute and director of UAMS Couples Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. Chelsea, when writing your book, Negotiating Your Inner Peace Treaty, I read you were heavily influenced by Carl Jung and Hal and Sidra Stone. You say this book is to help people become the person they were born to be, and you give us three big steps. You want to talk first about what become the person they were born to be means, and then I'll tell you what your three big steps are, and you can expound on them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about uh, becoming the person you're born to be, we're really talking about what in Jungian psychology would be referred to as the journey of individuation. And each of us has what I like to think of as a soul print, a, a dimension of ourselves, which is as unique as your fingerprint, and often that soul print gets overlaid by scripts that we're given from parents and early teachers and religious institutions and culture that prevent us from really connecting with our essential essence. And when people get disconnected from that essential essence, they become depressed, they become agitated, they become angry, and uh, they're lost. So negotiating the inner peace treaty uh, we we always have these arguments in our head between one part of us and the other part of us and this voice and that voice and this obligation and the part of us that wants to just be free and have fun and uh, so it, it really helps us to define our inner cast of characters as I like to call it and to work things out between the warring parts of self that's tough to do and it never ends yes that's true and I know exactly what you're talking about because there's a part of me that says, yeah, I'm really confident and I can go out and I can just, some days I just feel like I can just kill it. And then other days I wake up and I think, I am a fake. What am I doing? And those are those two opposing characters that, that fight each other right. all the time. So when I read that in your book, I was like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think everybody has that. That's not unique to me by yes. any means. So identifying the first step. You have three steps. And the first step is identifying and naming by becoming the observer. Yes. Uh, so even just the process of developing an observing self it makes a profound difference in people's lives. Uh, stepping outside of your reactivity or your automatic reactions, your automatic scripts, and taking a look at them sort of from the sideline and saying, what, what am I doing here? And I like to, you know, sometimes people uh, say, I'm so upset. And I like to ask people, well, who's upset in you? Who's upset? And, and why are they upset? So on the days when you're feeling really vulnerable and like you are no good or you can't do it, uh, you're really in a younger, a, a child ego state. That's our vulnerable self. And our vulnerable self is usually younger. Uh, people are very much like Rus Russian nesting dolls where they have, you know, those layers, every age you've ever been inside, 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 down to the very, very little baby inside. And we get kicked all over our age brackets throughout the day and throughout our lives. Some days we just feel really strong and really clear. Yes. And other times there's dimensions of us. Uh, I, I like to talk about the voices of warning. Uh, we try to expand in a certain direction and the voices of warning come in and say, don't do that. This terrible thing will happen. Uh, so in, in identifying the inner cast of characters and, the, and naming the voices that are in us, we can begin to step outside of that 
chorus of voices and to figure out who's activated in me right now. What do they want? What do they need? What's their agenda? And to really get conscious about the things that we're going to follow and the things that we're going to say, you know, I, I, that's old material. I'm not going to follow that. And you know this is true because you're the observer. And if it really was you, you wouldn't be able to observe it. So the fact that you're an observer makes you know those voices aren't real. Right, right. They, they're go definitely going on and sometimes very loudly. Uh, and, and most of those voices have body sensations that go along with them. So I, I, I like to think of it in terms of, of being in archetypal energies. So if you're in the archetypal energy of the mother, uh, you're very responsible and you're very other-oriented and you're trying usually to be a solid citizen and to care for others and you're not really thinking much about yourself. And it has a particular physical feeling that goes along with it. Um, if you're moving more into, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, your, later, your Aphrodite self, that more playful uh, sensuous self, you're not so much concerned about other people. You're just really tuned into your senses. It might feel uh, a bit lighter, a bit more playful, uh, a, a bit more embodied, um, and sometimes a little bit more anxious if you've got the, you know, the chorus of voices over here that says that being in that dimension of self is dangerous. So, you know, we, we, we have these different voices and we have the felt sense that goes with them. Is there a typical amount of voices that anybody has? Like 12? I know I have 12. I've named 12 right off the top of my head. It's easy to name 12. And, and sometimes when people sit down with the book and they actually start to name all the different dimensions of themselves, they'll, act, they'll actually come up with a, a rather long list, uh, many of whom can be grouped. Oh, so so let's just do some typical ones for the listeners that are out there. So there's the nurturer, you said the mother. Right. There's the sexy aphrodisia self. There's the child. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's, I think I read in your book, there's the accountant. We, we have accountants sometimes that kind of keep track of whether we're doing things right. We've got, you know, like the rule maker and the, uh, the person who keeps us sort of inside the lines of what's appropriate. Uh, some people have a very strongly developed rebel. Oh, that would be me. And so you probably Matthew, do. that's you. <laughs> I raised him. I know that's him. Yeah, so if you've got a big rebel in you, then that rebel takes great joy in saying things that are a little outside of the norm or oh. shocking people oh. or things of that sort. Well, yeah. you can't work at Arkansas Flag and Banner if you don't have a little rebel in you. Uh-huh. We've just about decided that's true down there. Don't you think, Tim? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and that's interesting because organizations actually have personalities as well. Oh, wow. Yes. So, you know, if you work at Flag and Banner, you might have a certain personality profile and a set of inner cells that everyone kind of shares, the rebel being one. That's absolutely us, I think. Uh-huh. If you're over at the university, you're more thinking-oriented. You're probably a little better behaved. The academics. You're, there's an academic personality, absolutely. Um, if you were in the performing arts, you would have a particular type of personality. Um, what would that one be? Actor? I mean, what well, I, th I think that performing uh, artists um, are have are more tuned into their emotional selves. Oh, the emotional use. Yeah, the they're less, side or something. They're they're more. Uh, they tend to be more impulsive. Uh, they're really trying to uh, have deep insight into their inner processes. So they're they're more reflective in terms of their inner processes, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're a little bit more show offy. You know, they like to be the center of attention, uh, so they'll do things to get to be the center of attention. They can, they can be pretty self-absorbed. Yeah. What's what's Donald Trump? Well, I, I think we'll skip talking about <laughs> Donald Trump. That's that's a that's a show in and of itself. <laughs> Aren't you diplomatic? I thought you might have a word, and there was a word. I think people try to give a word to it all the time and can't figure it out. Um, so we are talking really about the second step. And the second step, first you identify a name, mm -hmm. which is your soul print. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, really, now we're moving into the second step, which is knowing those people. Getting to know. And so in my book, I actually have a series of questions that once you identify. So let's say I was really over-identified with being uh, a good student. All right? So I, I actually do have a good student in me, and I, I like school and but that was also tied into feedback that I got from being raised by my particular set of parents for whom that was very important. And so I can, you know, I can interview that part of me and say, well, t tell me about yourself. 
And that good student might say, well, it's very important to get good grades because it makes my mother happy. And, you know, it's very important to have my mother be happy. And I, I also feel good when I get good grades. But if, so there's a, there's a series of questions that I can ask, including when did you come online? Because I don't remember being anything about being a good student in kindergarten. Kindergarten was, you know, about like wandering around and looking at the tulips in the backyard. And Oh, if we could have stayed like that. It, yes, yes. So that, you know, that really, that young... Um, I was so tied into nature when I was little. And exactly. The, the imaginal world. and the, you know, So that's all nested in me, and that's a very different energetic from my thinking-oriented academic self. And I still try to make space for her because if I don't make space for her, I can get very stressed out and unhappy. So she's very present. She's a very important part of me, and she's always with me. I, I carry her in my little pocket and bring her out. Sometimes. And she's present in the world. One of the things that I think I heard you say is that she she smells the road. She stops and smells the road. Yeah. She sees what's going on in the room. Yeah. You know, she's, she appreciates she's not somewhere down the road thinking about tomorrow. Yes, very much in the now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So getting to know these people and how the body speaks to us. So uh, tell us about the body speaking to us. Well, our bodies are actually speaking to us all the time. But as Westerners, we are not very tuned into our bodies. So what's interesting about emotions is they actually have a bodily component. The way that you know that you're afraid or you know that you're angry is you have a particular set of sensations that get set off in your body. The way that you know that you're in love is because your body is telling you you're in love. Uh, or if you're, you know, feeling very responsible, there's a particular kind of, a, I, I know when I'm feeling very responsible, I feel like almost all my energy is up in my head and maybe in my shoulders, you know, whereas if I'm, um, if I'm sad, I might feel it more in my chest. If I'm anxious, I might have more of a fluttery feeling in my arms and my stomach. Um, and for people to actually get grounded in their bodies is incredibly important in life. So when you're having one of your personalities show itself, mm -hmm. and, it, and let's say it's not, everybody's okay with the good ones, so let's just talk about the bad ones. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, a, it's an anxiety one, and you're having anxieties and you're feeling you know, inadequate. Um, you need to really pay attention to the way your body feels? And then what do you do with that? Yes, and what most people do with their anxieties or their anger or these sort of darker emotions that we would prefer not having is they revile and persecute them. They hate those parts of themselves. And what I want people to do is to actually get into relationship with those parts of selves and have conversations. If, if you personify your anxious self or your angry self, uh, or the part of you that is your rebel self, because, you know, there's times and places where rebel is perfectly okay, and there's other times and places where it's not okay. Uh, but if you get into relationship, let's say with your anxious self, and you begin to dialogue with that self and say, you know, tell me about yourself, and tell me what you want and need in this moment. What are you concerned about? Uh, it's almost like uh, parenting yourself. It's like taking that little anxious self and tucking it in and saying, yeah, I hear you, I hear your concerns, but in my adult self, I'm, I'm on board here and I'm looking out for the things that you're concerned about. You don't have to carry this burden all by yourself. So I try to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. I try to think about something else or do something else, but you're saying go into it, feel it, let it wash over you, figure out what it is, and will it go away on its own? I'm not really saying go into it as much as be in relationship with it because we don't want the anxious self driving the car. You know, we, we want to listen because, you know, anxious selves actually pick up on a lot of important stuff. They tend to be hypervigilant and they're, they're really looking across the landscape to see danger signs. They pick up on things that our rebel might miss or our um, Aphrodite self might miss. So it's, it's good to be attending to those little anxious signals that we have. But... Um, if we're really practicing the development of an observing self and we're living from what I like to call the calm core, yeah. we're developing that calm core, we can be aware that we're anxious and we're sort of holding our anxiety, but we're not letting that anxiety drive our lives. Um, sometimes if, if I'm about to go into a meeting or something and I know I'm really, really vulnerable, yeah. um, I will actually kind of in my imagination, I'll have a, a conversation with my anxious self and I'll say, you know what, you, you need to just like, you know, 
go out on the playground or go sit outside next to a rose bush and hang out with the rose bush for a little while. I'm, I'm get, I need to go into a meeting that they need to deal with some stuff. And this is, you're not going to really enjoy it very much or does it work? It does. So when you talk about calm core, you're talking about, you're now talking about the third step, which is negotiating at the round table. Yes. Your inner cast of characters stay in your calm core and in, my church, they said, the, they call this the peace that passes all understanding. Yes, yes. So when when we really begin to name, know, identify, and get into relationship with everything that lives in us, we have uh, a better capacity to be observing them and know what that's about, to know when we're triggered because we know what the set of body sensations are. And I like to picture gathering these different parts of self around an inner round table and sometimes having a committee meeting where they might talk about what their concerns are. Or, I mean, even in terms of coming to Arkansas, I had to, I had to consult my inner roundtable. What do you think about this? You know, what, what is the... I lived in, in North Carolina mountains close to a couple of waterfalls, and I used to love to go hiking through the forest to the waterfall and sitting in front of the waterfall. So I had to ask waterfall girl, you know, it's like, how, how do you feel about not being able to hike to the waterfall? And what are you going to do... Um, to not, you know, to replace that. And lo and behold, we found a house here in Arkansas that has a waterfall in the no, backyard. No, that's not true. It's true. I have a waterfall in my backyard. It's a stone waterfall, not a natural waterfall. Oh. But huh? um, I'm able to sit in the um, around the table in the back next to the waterfall. And we have beautiful trees back there and actually have a little taste of, of what I enjoyed previously. So... So you sit down with your inner cast of characters, and I know in your book you make a diagram. You have a you have a circle, and around the circle you have all the characters that you've identified, mm-hmm. and then you have a line like an arrow that shoots off to another circle, and in that circle, it's called the soul print. Yes. How do you get all those cast of characters to buy into your other circle, the soul print? Well, it it has a lot to do with developing the calm core and uh, being in a process of growth. So in the book, I talk about how initially we're defined, we have an ego identity. And that ego identity is really defined by things like our resume, our roles, our history, our health, uh, our religious affiliation, our, you know, the groups we're affiliated with, et cetera, our spirituality, all those things, the the ego identity. Mm -hmm. And as we begin to really do inner work and tune into the interior processes that are going on with us, Uh, That soul print, which the Jungians call the capital S self, and the ego identity would be the little s self. So the capital S self is really the orchestrator of the fullness of our lives. And it's continually feeding information through our dreams and through synchronicities, those interesting coincidences that we come across in our lives, and inviting us to become more. And so if we're actually tuned in and we're listening to that process, then we're continuing to grow, and that definition of who we are is expanding. We're not stuck in a definition that might become increasingly constricting as we get older. Yep, it never changes, does it? Mm-hmm. All right, it's the bottom of the hour. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Chelsea Wakefield on interpreting your dreams and get advice on couples therapy and, yes, including the often difficult subject sex therapy. Arkansas Flag and Banner is proud to underwrite Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. McCoy began this broadcast with the intention of offering a mentoring platform for those with an entrepreneurial spirit. Through candid conversations and interesting interviews with business and community-minded Arkansans, listeners gain insight into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Carrie McCoy, founder and president of Arkansas Flag and Banner, believes in paying knowledge and experience forward and developed this radio show as a means of doing so. The biographies, life experiences, and wisdom of her guests would likely go unheard if not for this venue. Rarely do people open up for an hour to an audience about their life mistakes, triumphs, and pitfalls. This unique radio show allows the listener intimate access into the stories of prominent leaders in our state. I'm Adrienne McNally, manager of the Arkansas Flag and Banner Showroom and Gift Shop, located on the first floor of the historic DeBorean Hall on the corner of 9th and State Streets in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. 
You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I am speaking today with Chelsea, Dr. Chelsea Wakefield, Professor of UAMS's Psychiatric Research Institute and Director of UAMS's Couple Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. If you've got questions or comments for my guest or me, this is your chance. You can email me at questions at upyourbusiness.org. And that's questions with an S, upyourbusiness.org. Okay, Chelsea, eight years ago, you became interested in sex therapy as part of your couples therapy work. You said, we have very poor sex education in this country in terms of how sex actually works, the difference between men's and women's bodies, the process of sexuality in terms of desire and arousal, and the technicalities of how people actually reach orgasm. And you wrote a book about it, In Search of Aphrodite, Women, Archetypes, and Sex Therapy. In this book, you talk about what? In Search of Aphrodite um, is not a technical book. It's a book about sexual identity. And not you, it may, might include partner preference, but it, it really is about a woman defining her unique sexual essence. And every woman has a unique sexual essence, and women are often disconnected from that sexual essence. They, women are very preoccupied with being the, pers- the person that they, their partner wants them to be. And ple- they're very focused on pleasing their partners, and they're not always very focused on really discovering who they are as sensual beings and expressing that in the context of an intimate relationship. Well said. You use your cast of characters that was in your first book. Yes. Which I want to make sure everybody knows. Your first book that we talked about is a workbook. So you need to get the book. And I'll tell you at the end of the show how to get the book. And you can actually do the work yourself. Yes. And you can learn a great deal about yourself. Yes. We're all going to do that. Um, When you went through your sexual archetypes uh, to form your sexual essence wheel, which Mm -hmm. you're going to have to tell us what that means, the one I loved the most was the fairy tale syndrome. Oh, yes. Uh, We get, women internalize, deeply internalize fairy tales. And one of the, so I I have a listing of various fairy tales that women internalize, one of which is the Sleeping Beauty story. Dang, Disney. Where we wait (laughs) to be awakened by someone else. We're waiting to be awakened. And women might wait to be awakened forever. I've had women, I have many, many women who have come into my practice who have never had an orgasm. And they're partnered, and they don't know how to get there, and their partners don't know how to uh, participate with them in that. And they, they really don't understand how their bodies work, or they, and they're not in touch with their unique sexual Is that essence. a mental or physical thing for most women? It's both. Because some, some women just cannot. Very few, but some my under, Well, very, very few. Yeah, very few. Yeah. So most of them... Almost all women are orgasmic. Yeah. and uh, But they don't always understand the technology. That's, there's some technical dimensions to it. And, and then there are psychological issues around uh, orgasm. Yeah. Sometimes women are afraid of... Uh, sometimes pe- women are afraid they might be going crazy. Uh, wow. they, they're just what do well, you mean? They, it's the loss of control. Oh, yeah. How about... I love this one, too. This is one of your topics. Porn star versus sexual priestess. Yes, yes. Particularly in the younger generation nowadays, we have so much sex education by pornography, which I think is very unfortunate because it gives people unrealistic scripts about what sexuality is actually about. It gives people unrealistic scripts about what women women actually want and what to expect in terms of normal human sexuality. Uh, they don't. Most people don't have good um, uh, porn literacy, meaning they don't understand that these are actors and actresses, and the activities are actually taped and cut over, you know, multiple hours, and and this is not how normal human sexuality would operate. So women get preoccupied either by the pressure that they feel from their partners or by watching pornography themselves in terms of how they should be behaving. And, uh, so you think they act too much like porn stars? They feel pressure to act like a porn to star. act like porn stars, and it, 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 this might come from a partner. It might come from internally by comparing themselves to these beautiful bodies that they see. And one of my great objections in the 
the whole field of human sexuality is that we tend to think that the only people having great sex are the young, beautiful ones. That's and the only ones I want to watch. I don't know if that's the only ones having sex. But. Well, in, in my experience, some of the best sex is being had by people over 50. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, particularly if you're in a, a, a caring relationship with both, where both parties are interested in, in delving more deeply into the sexual psyche, into each other's psyches, uh, which is what I consider the way that long-term relationships are kept lively and alive is not necessarily by uh, dressing up in sexy lingerie, but by really going more and more deeply into the intersubjective world. Well, everybody's busy. I mean, how do you get past... I was busy at work or I was busy with the kids or I was taking care of my elderly parents. I mean, everybody's got an excuse for why they won't stop and do what you just said. So you have, how do you do How do you make time and force yourself to do that? Well, you, you have to value it and you have to understand the tremendous reward that comes from relating to another human being in this way. What is the reward? The, the reward is a depth of meaning and a vibrant connection uh, and in, particularly in a long-term relationship, it keeps the relationship ever unfolding, ever alive. And the, the kind of um, meaning. But what happens when you get older and you just can't have sex anymore for, for physical reasons? Well, first of all, we are able to have sex to a much later age. People can be actually sexually active into their 90s. Uh, now, there are certain problems that people encounter. Um, women postmenopausally uh, can have difficulty with lubrication and discomfort, and some of those things can be addressed by a gynecologist. Men can have, I mean, most men know nowadays that they can, if they're having problems with erectile dif difficulty, there are medications for that. I actually like to say that uh, ED is about eros dysfunction, not oh, erectile. Oh, isn't that cute? Yes, because we don't have nearly enough valuing of eros in this world of, of uh, deep emotional, energetic connections with tell, each other. Tell our listeners what eros means. Eros is that E-R-O-S. E-R-O-S. It's, it's the root of the word erotic, uh, but it's much more than just a sexual dimension. Having an eros connection to, to life means that you're connected to the juice of life that you are connected to things that bring you energy and vibrancy. And when you are sharing from uh, the deeper parts of your personality with another person and you've actually gotten to the place in a relationship where you can disclose to reveal yourself and the other person has gotten to a place where they can actually receive and listen to who that person is without becoming scared or defensive, you're in a really amazing relationship, a very vibrant relationship. What is the sexual essence wheels and how do you use it to help accomplish what you're talking about? So I like to show women who are exploring their sexuality, the, the sexual essence wheels, because uh, it's shaped like a flower, an unfolding flower, and there are four petals of the flower. Uh, there are four dimensions of archetypal sexuality one of which is the nurturer, and many women find themselves in the archetype of the nurturer. Uh, the, the, another one of the petals is the romantic. Another petal is the seductress. And the fourth petal is the mystic or the muse. And those tend to be very spiritually oriented sexual beings. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, when you think about someone like uh, Grace Kelly, she was a muse. She was a little bit of an ice princess a little bit removed. She was the kind of woman that you would just look at and admire, but you can't really picture yourself tumbling around with her. her I don't heart. know if that's a good thing. Well, it's not necessarily a good thing, but there, even people like Angelina Jolie, who is very much in the archetype of the seductress, uh, and sometimes the dark seductress, has an element of the muse yes, with she her. Does. She's a little bit aloof, a little bit mysterious. You don't quite know where, what she's thinking. She seems a little bit unapproachable. Um, whereas somebody, uh, actually, if you think about Jennifer Aniston, uh, and Brad Pitt was paired with both of them, Jennifer Aniston is more of the girl next door. Which she's one does a, she fall under? She's, she, I would say she's a romantic. Yeah. She's, she's warm. She's friendly. She's sparkly. She's inviting. She's playful. Mm -hmm. um, and she's uh, typically romantics ha have a young quality about them. Now, each of these petals, if you go too far into them and become over-identified, you can move into the dark dimension. So, for instance, if you're an over-nurturer, 
you can move into the archetype of the dutiful wife. Smothering. Or you can become smothering. Yes. Uh, you can become a doormat. Uh, oh, yeah. All of which, and, and one of the greatest recipes for a loss of desire in a woman's life is to simply be having dutiful sex. Sex that's oriented around, well, my partner needs this, so I'm providing it. I'm not that interested. I don't think men really care. <laughs> you do? I think men care a great deal. And the men that I see in my consulting rooms are there because they want their partners to be engaged. Sure. Yeah. So you find out which one of these you are. Put part of your personalities, your your unique sexual essence, your identifying names yes. in there. So, we so put your, your personality types into each one of uh-huh. these petals. Uh-huh. And then what do you do? Well, you, it's good to identify where you currently are. And I call that your, sometimes it's actually not your homeland. Sometimes you're actually in those petals because you've been scripted into being there. You've been shamed, you've been instructed, you've been pressured, and it's not your sexual homeland. So the first, the first thing is to begin to discover where is your sexual homeland. Are you really more of a mystic and a muse? Are you really more of a seductress, but you've been shamed out of being a seductress? Are you really more of a nurturer, but you've been... Uh, you know, caught up in being, having very spiritual sex because you've got a lot of script about what is good sex as a spiritual woman. Does everybody have some of all of these? I find that the happiest women sexually actually have a bit of all of them. Okay. And they can travel that sexual essence wheel. I, I like to say that you, you have a homeland, but you also have a passport. And you can visit other dimensions of that, which means that if you have a partner who loves it when you're nurturing, but you're not essentially a nurturer, you can certainly visit the nurturing, the land of nurturing. I just want to tell everybody that you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Chelsea Wakefield, professor of UAMS Psychiatric Research Institute and director of UAMS Couple Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're going to continue talking about sexology for a minute, and then we're going to jump over to dream study because it's part of the way we find out who these people are we're talking about. When you identify these dream characters and you put them on all of these petals, what do you do with that next before we go on to dreams? What do you do with all that? Okay. So uh, first of all, I I only do dream work with the people in my practice who are interested in that dimension of the depth of the psyche. Because some people think it's crazy. And and some people aren't interested in it. So we can certainly work with other dimensions to to get there. Um, Dreams are a tremendous resource. They, They come from the psyche, from the unconscious mind. And they give us snapshots, daily snapshots about where we are internally in the psyche. And they are continually offering up, it's sort of like they give us a picture of who we are and they invite us into something more. Dreams are the pathway through which the soul print or the capital S self is feeding new archetypal dimensions and new possibilities, new creative ways of dealing with the life that we're living. So it's good to attend to dreams. So I do dream work. A few, I started about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, and I go in and out of doing it. Uh, and I, do, I have learned from Susan Sim Smith that you talked about at the beginning of the show that everybody, that there's three types of dreams, and the most common one is that everybody in the dream is you. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to our listeners? Everyone in the dream is actually a construction of your own psyche. So even if you're dreaming about... Um, I don't know, you're somebody that you work with or your next door neighbor or some, or, you know, or the guy that we were talking about earlier, a dream you had someone at church in the back of the church. And yes. uh, sometimes we recognize these people, we know them, and sometimes we don't. They're uh, constructions of uh, the psyche, sort of, you know, people we've never met. But they carry uh, personality qualities. And in the dream, you are the dream ego. So you, you'll be the one who's sort of watching the unfolding. So you're the observer. You're the observer in the dream. You're the okay. person who's actually acting in the dream as yourself. And then you're encountering, encountering other personalities in the dream. Like people you know. Like people you know, and they carry certain dimensions of personality. I always dream about my girlfriend, Kathleen, if she's listening. It took me a long time to figure out why I dreamed about her. Why do you dream about her? Because she always feels guilty that she's not doing enough. Okay. And so when you dream about her and you wake up the next morning, how does that dream inform? It tells me that I am, she always thinks she's not doing enough. She should be doing more, but she's always doing more and she's fine. She's Mm -hmm. just fine. She actually does above and beyond the call of duty all the time. So when I dream about her, 
that's that part of me that thinks I'm not doing enough, but I actually am. Right. So that's a great insight. And that's one of the valuable things about dreams is they can warn us when we've tipped a little bit too far in one dimension or another. Dreams can actually have a compensatory uh, function also. They can, if we've gone too far in a certain dimension, they bring the elements of the opposite into the dream. Just like in that, they might be saying, you've gone too far into thinking you're not doing enough. Here's a representation. And she has become a dream symbol for you. She is. So over time, we have these dream symbols that repeat, and they appear in our dreams. Uh, for instance, I have a particular dream symbol I, uh, of the dolphin. And when the dolphin appears in my dream, I know that I am not being playful enough, that I have moved far too far into being responsible and intellectual and thinking things through, and I'm, I'm just, I need to lighten up. So it doesn't always have to be a person in your dream. It can be an animal, or it can be an object, it can be a spider. It, it can, can be, be a setting. It can be a setting. Yes. So you might find yourself uh, in your old high school, or you might find yourself in your childhood home. And so it's very important when you're dreaming to look at what's going on in your life the week before, the, what's going on in your life the week after, what you're heading into, because your psyche which is the dream maker, is going to be commenting on what that is stirring up in the deep psyche. And we are not always aware of what it's stirring up. In your book, you tell us why dreams matter. They help us process the events of the day. Mm -hmm. They offer us creative solutions for living, alert us to unconscious forces that are driving us, show us where we are out of balance, provide compensation, wish fulfillment, and release pressure, give us yes and no guidance, help us heal, invite us to become something more. How do you know when you dream those dreams, which one of these messages it's trying to tell you? Well, you start doing dream work. And over time, you learn. It's, you know, a lot of people are kind of intimidated by dream work. But it's just to begin with waking up and writing them down and wondering, you know, what's, who are these people in my dream? And what if, if I was to actually interview them, like I do my inner cast of characters, I might do something that is called active imagination, and I might have a conversation with them and saying, you know, so why are you showing up in my dream right now? What do you have to tell me? Uh, earlier, you were asking about the sexual dimensions. So let's say that I was wanting to become, uh, just feel a little bit more sexually uninhibited or more sensual. I might have a dream about a woman who really embodied that. And in imagining, sometimes what I do with my dreams is I'll actually move inside the dream figures and I'll imagine what it's like to be in that state, to carry that archetypal energy. And there's a felt sense to it. You can feel it in your body. So I might, um, you know, just experience being that particular woman or and then bring that into my sexual dimension as a, as a human being when I'm in interaction with my partner. So you don't think in your dreams those are the cast of characters that are in your day that are the voices talking to you too? I always thought that those were the same voices. The ones that are talking to me in the day are the same people. They're my cast of characters in my dreams at night. Some of them are, but then there are new ones. Because again, the psyche, one of the functions of the psyche is that it's always seeking to grow us beyond our current identity. So um, you can have the dream that has, there's three types of dreams. I can't remember what they are, but there's the one we just talked about where everybody in the dream is a part of you, mm -hmm. one of your cast of characters. Mm -hmm. There's a dream that tells you about the future that's mm -hmm. foreboding. Mm -hmm. And then there was another one, wasn't there? Sometimes when we're dreaming, we are actually dreaming about someone else in our life. And we're dreaming about uh, where we are in relationship to that person. So like if you dream about your husband, you're probably really dreaming about your husband. I, I like to think that dreams are overdetermined. So we're actually dreaming about the dimension in me that is like my husband. And I'm also dreaming about my objective, my husband out there. And so both of those can be true. If the listeners want to do dream work, because your book only had a few chapters on dream work, mm -hmm. what book would you recommend? I think that Jeremy Taylor has written some wonderful books on dream work. Uh, in fact, one of his books is entitled Dream Work, and I think it's been reissued by the publisher recently under a new title. But Jeremy Taylor is a great writer on dream work. Robert Johnson had a wonderful book called Inner Work, which gives some great suggestions on dream work. Um, James Hollis has written a lot about, uh, he's a wonderful writer on Jungian psychology. 
Um, they're, and that's Carl Jung. Yeah, yes, Carl Jung. And he's just so smart. J-U-N-G, Carl Jung, mm-hmm. who was a, a Swiss psychiatrist who was a contemporary of Freud and sort of broke off. What I like about the Jungian world is that they tend to believe that uh, the spiritual dimension of life is very important. Freud was an atheist, so he mm-hmm. wasn't interested in the spiritual dimension of life, whereas Jung was deeply interested in that dimension. Yes, I like that too. So Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty is your book that is a workbook that people can get and they can actually try to define these inner cast of characters, which is really fun to do. And it's got a section on dream work and a section on shadow work, which is also very important in our and life. And what is shadow work? Shadow work, uh, in, in Jungian thought, our shadow consists of dimensions of the personality that we've disowned or that we've never developed. Orphans. We've got orphans and, you know, just parts of us which we've cast aside. So it's going to be really hard to find those. And those appear in your dreams. You continually have shadow elements that are coming forward in your dreams. And we have both dark shadow and bright shadow. And I find that the bright shadow work is very interesting. We tend to project that onto other people that we admire. But often, for instance, let's say you were a very expressive child and you're in your youth, and your, you had a very quiet household, and your parents didn't like your rambunctiousness, or your singing out loud, or your dancing, or whatever, and they said, cut that stuff out, you know, quiet down, and, you know, quit being that way. You might have relegated those dimensions of yourself to shadow, and yet they live there, and they're longing to be a part of you. So you might have dreams of uh, expressing yourself. Expressing yourself, yeah. You're not still taking clients, are you? I do have some openings at UAMS, and because I don't keep people in couples work forever, we kick them out. We, we finish up and send You're them done. on their way. Get out. Yeah. I wanted to ask you how you know when you are done and when you need to quit working, but that's a, we're out of time. You've got to come back next year. And tell us what you're up to. I know you're writing another book. I am. I'm writing a book on couples. Yeah, we need to come back and talk about that. And you are having workshops because I just found out about it today and I'm going to sign up for it. It's a deep immersion in women's archetypal exploration. Yeah. Thank you, Chelsea. And because I figured out where all you've lived, look, I gave you a desk set with the United States flag. Uh huh. I gave you one of California where you grew up. Okay. I gave you one of where you just left, North Carolina. Uh-huh. And I gave you one of Arkansas. I love it. Thank you so much. You can put that on your desk. Okay. If you have a great entrepreneurial story you would like to share, I would love to hear from you. Send a brief bio or your contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org and someone will be in touch. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program's been about you, you're right, but it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio show, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.